Smiths with a track called Stop Me If You Think You've Heard This One Before from the album Strange Ways Here We Come. I'm David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Hello once again to another epic slice of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. As always, I'll be crossing time, space and genre with the finest in indie pop from the golden decade. This week's special guest is going to be Carl Coughlin from the band Micro Disney, and also Fatima Mansions, plus his own solo um, career stuff. Anyway, that kind of grooviness. Um, I'll be bringing you that interview in four easy-to-digest little sections or segments throughout the show, alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But to kick off the party, and uh, let's face it, we are in a party mood, I thought we should play the first-ever single by Micro Disney. This is Hello Rascals.
blessing fire squads are the pleasures of this baby's game. the Fatima Mansions with a track called what's it called? Oh yeah, Mr. Baby and that was taken from the 1990 John Peel session, yes, many decades ago. And before that we had Micro Disney and their first ever single which was called Hello Rascals. Hello, this is David Eastall from the C86 show and this week's special guest is Carl Coughlin from um, well, from many things including obviously Micro Disney, Fatima Mansions and now Solo. And also as you probably gather if you're a fan or somebody who's paying vague attention to all these things, um, Micro Disney have a date on the 9th of June. This is going to be at the Barbican. It's a Saturday so if you like the band do check it out and do book tickets because I don't think there's that many left. But um, I've got this interview which um, I did just before Christmas um, on the West Coast. Yes indeed, though I was on the east coast but that's the joy of uh, technology so i'm going to be bring you that interview with carl coughlin um in four easy to digest little segments but before we hear any of that gripping interview i think we should play another ba- uh, track from micro disney this is called birthday girl
Birthday Girl from uh, their 1985 album, The Clock Comes Down the Stairs. Yes, the one and only Micro Disney. Hello, this is David Easter on the C86 show. A bit later, I will tell you how you can contact me on the show because um, we always love your messages. But as you probably gather, this week's special guest is Carl Coughlin. And um, yes, indeed. Um, and a few weeks after I spoke to him, which was just before Christmas, I did sort of also have an interview with uh, Sean O'Hagan as well. So um, check me out. Um, so I'll be bringing you that probably a bit later on. Um, either, yeah, it won't be this month at all, when it'll be next month. But um, this is going to be the first part of the interview I had. Um, when we begin, when I started to um, talk as sometimes one does at these uh, moments, about the kind of, I suppose, the musical landscape of the time, and this being the early 80s and that post-punk period, and just before indie had slightly um, happened, which I put down to 83, but uh, Micro Disney were there a little bit just before that. Um, So yes, this was the sort of question and uh, the point that I was making as Carl launched into his reply, and this is it. It was a bit of a weird time because... You'd had this big flowering of things like, uh, well, I'm thinking of at Rough Trade in particular, but I guess postcard and factory as well. A lot of things had kind of peaked around 82. And uh, by the time we arrived in London, um, that crop had of acts had all kind of moved to major labels and were making really expensive. So things were kind of starting all over again, I suppose. And the Smiths kind of appeared at almost exactly the same time. Yeah. Um, and that changed changed rough trade a lot and it changed the way that I think the the independent labels saw themselves. Um, and it, it had its great aspects and its its fatal aspects, <laughs> to be honest, you know. Well there, well, there was definitely a golden period during that sort of um, that sort of I suppose that eighty three to eighty six period, where where as a fan, you know, you'd be listen, one would be listening to John Peel and recording his show religiously, and then getting the NME on a Wednesday and sort of again sort of going through that while being slightly angst ridden with the political times as well. So, and all these kind of indie bands started sort of appearing sort of on a regular basis and labels as well. So, did you feel part of a scene at that time? Yes and no. Um, obviously, the music we played uh, was quite particular, 
and the way we arranged the songs was quite particular and not very much in line with even people that we we liked you know we you know we were big fans of the fall and the blue orchids and the pop group and the red crayola and things like that and, and yet we sounded the way we sounded um which um you know with with some individuals that we encountered went on really well and others not so much you know we were friends with the we knew all the creation people socially but we kind of didn't do what they did yes um as much as we liked some of it you know yeah and obviously you know i mean i talked to i think his name was paul finnegan from the woodbees and obviously he's sort of from from ireland did you did that make much of a difference to your sort of like sense of community and sound um it meant that we to be honest came into what we did in a kind of a hermetically sealed way because it was um uh ireland at that particular point um didn't have much of an infrastructure for making music independently or even being within the mainstream business was sort of difficult there was really only one act that <laughs> That was that was really doing that. Uh, so we we didn't really we weren't in Dublin and we didn't have a huge amount in common with other people who were doing music over there. After about 1981, yeah. things were great for for a time there, but um, with the Irish economy completely floundering and various social changes that went along with that. There weren't as many venues to play, and that's why we became a two-piece and, you know, had that quite strange way of looking at our, our, um, our arrangements and stuff. Yes, because cause the other thing that I've, I've kind of noticed is that, that most bands do have this very sort of definite five-year kind of narrative arc. You know, they get together, they suddenly realise they make a bit of a sound, and a lot of the bands, especially that period, were sort of formed almost through poverty because there wasn't much else to do, and there was also the um, various government schemes that you could go on, which would mean that mm. you, you could be self-employed or pretend to be a self-employed musician. So they thought, oh, that's that's great, let's do that and take that, and then realise they made a bit of an odd sound like people like big flame or stump or um bog shed and you know obviously john peel picked up and then they thought wow let's do the album and do a bit of a tour and then things start the wheels start kind of coming off that kind of journey because obviously there's there's like the dynamics within the band plus no one ever thought about the admin and the the sort of um the legality of it all as in you know sorting out managers and the accounts so how did it go with um the early years of the micro disney well we made lots of mistakes in terms of administration especially the accounts <laughs> um that was uh that was a real watershed for us the fact that we were either unable or just not in the right in the right set of people to keep tabs on what we were doing i mean having the john peel play was huge, incalculably huge for us. What was really so unique about that period, and I mean, you, you know, I'm sure you know all about this because you've been through these narratives, but it literally meant that you didn't have to have released all that many records to be able to go and do one-nighters in, you know, Lancaster and Cardiff and, you know, the out-of-the-way places as well as um, 
the obvious London, Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow, Edinburgh. Well, Glasgow, Edinburgh was financially a bit difficult, but um, there, there was a, there was an infrastructure because people had heard some of the songs and they would show up, you know, um, and that was massive. But but it meant that ideally you needed to be writing down <laughs> what fees you got and what you did with them. And after you know two years of that, we ended up in a position where the revenue was knocking on the door and we had no idea. We were broke and we, we had no idea how, how really how, how we had gotten to that point. Well, we're going to pause it there. That's the first part of my inter- interview with Carl uh, Coughlin. Um, another three to go, but uh, to keep the party rolling, I think we should play another track. This is, um, what's it going to be? Let's have a look here on the little schedule. Yes, it's going to be Before Famine. Check it out.
another track from Micro Disney that was before Famine and that was taken from their 1984 album Everybody is Fantastic. Hello, this is David Easter on the C86 show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 show and I will be there. And it's always nice to uh, get your messages as long as they're um, positive and groovy. If they're not, then just don't bother. Anyway, look, this is my uh, special on the life and times of Carl Coughlin. And this is the second part of the interview where um, I ask him a little bit about his career and what was happening after Micro Disney. And um, yes, a life in music. It's not easy, as they say. And uh, this is where he tries to explain the next part. There, there didn't appear to be any going back. Um, the kind of the, the life of paying the rent um, seemed unreachable. Um, I felt I was too messed up and I chose to continue venting that. Um, it is what it is. I don't think I deserve a medal for it or anything, but it um, it seemed like the, literally the only thing to do right. um, for my sanity or for just occupying the time. <laughs> Well, it was kind of interesting because I suppose I did um, spoke to David Gage from The Wedding Presence and he was one of the few people who just said, that was it, I'm just doing music. But apart from people like David Bowie and Lemmy from Motorhead, I realised that most people drop out, and obviously the Rolling Stones, but most people will drop out and then come back a few years later. And I've noticed with all these indie bands I've been doing, most of them have had a, like only a two-decade two period of having a break, whereas because I think they just couldn't handle it anymore and needed to you know get their life and other mm. aspects together so kind of continuing in that world that is um rock and roll is is quite you know as careers go most people when i ask them they they sort of some often sort of regret ever sort of touching it but then realize that once you've sort of got into it you know it's almost impossible to completely get out of it like some addiction yeah well i i certainly don't regret it um I regret some of the things it made me do, but that was my own fault. Um, it um, it gave me the life I've had. You know, mm. I wouldn't be standing I wouldn't be standing out here this morning. Mm. You know, in these circumstances, I mean, I've, I'm just visiting, but this is part of my life, visiting family here, and all of these things wouldn't have happened to me um, uh, if if I hadn't have done music for as long as I did. Um, or as long as I have done. Um, so I certainly don't regret that. Um, there was a lot of tunnel vision, though. At times, it would seem like all of your existence depended on one record. That happened a lot. And it's not the best way to build a creative output. I mean, last night, I went to see um, a show here in, in town with... Um, and one of the acts was was Mike Watt, um, his his latest thing, the, the Second Men, um, and he's someone who's been going round about the same amount of time, or maybe slightly longer. And I don't think it ever crosses his mind, and he he to to, to do something else. Although he does give you the labour union local number of each member of the of the band as he's introducing them so there is a there is a there is an organizing um principle um at work there i'm not it's it's a 
you know, it's a trade union one, but I'm not entirely sure, <laughs> sure what, it, what it denotes beyond that. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is that he's someone who's still on the road for, you know, maybe 200 nights a year or, or, or more. Um, I don't do that. No. Um, because of being based in the UK, there simply isn't that kind of um, infrastructure anymore. Uh, there isn't even the one that there that there used to be, uh, and get for anybody to get started now, yeah. I I just don't know how they manage it. But the quality of what's being done, for the most part, is really not good now. But you know, there there are people that I like. Don't get me wrong, but um. I think the early 80s were, you know, an explosion, a demographic and sociological explosion of a particular kind that isn't likely to happen again through music. Um, because even the stuff that I don't like has a spirit to it that isn't really imaginable now. People were literally making it up as they went along. Um, they weren't consciously emulating anything. It was only really in the towards the end of the 80s and as the 90s came in, the, there came to be this kind of museum piece emulation thing going on. But if you look at something like Stump, for example, that's an excellent example. <laughs> I mean, what the fuck? You know, I mean, especially knowing the people and some of the people involved, um, you know, it, and it really sta stands up now. And that was the second part of my interview with Carl Coughlin from Micro Disney and also Fatima Mansions. And also he does have a, um, a solo career, as well as this date on the 9th of June at the Barbican. That is with Micro Disney. And um, yes, we like to um, mention Stump as much as possible. Well, I do anyway. And I do have a Stump special, which I need to also um, get out there as long as long alongside a box shirt as well. But anyway, look, let's play some more music before we hear the third part of this interview. This is going to be another track from Micro Disney. This is a track called Town to Town. Take it away.
There you go, that's the track called Turn to Turn, and that came from their 1987 album, Crooked Mile, produced by the one and only Lenny K. Hello, this is David Eastall. If you just tuned in on the C86 show, and this week's special is with Carl Coughlin from Micro Disney and Fatima Mansions. And um, yes, there was a part of the interview where he was talking about um, having a chat, and um, at the time, this was, I think, two days before Christmas, and he was on the west coast of America at 8 o'clock in the morning, which was decent of him to get up to do this interview, but um, much appreciated. But anyway, this is the next part of uh, the third part of the interview where I ask him that predictable question, so um, slap me if um, if you sort of roll your eyes here. Um, yeah, why are Micro Disney getting back together for this date? I mean, I didn't say it in a really unpleasant way, like, why? Because, um, but you know, I thought wow, I should just pop the question, time as you do. Well, it's it, it seemed like such an uncanny and unlikely thing to do, and uh, we're all friendly with one another, and it, it uh, you know, the clock comes down the stairs, keeps getting kind, having kind things said about it in the media, especially in Ireland. And it kind of built to a point where um, a national concert hall in Dublin, who the the the, the programmer, the head programmer of the national concert hall, is a friend of mine and a friend of Sean's. Uh, it's not nepotism, though. He had concluded that there was something to be done, so he put together a proposal, and everybody said yes. Um, it's as simple as that. But it's so long. It's been so long that. Um, it's a challenge to get it to get it right. Um, a challenge that's only really just beginning <laughs> with <laughs> with a ticket sale. You know, I mean, that there's far there's a lot left to do, shall we say? But um, uh, the, well, the the work has begun in earnest, and we we start doing actual rehearsals in in in, in January. But yeah. Um, yeah, to step back into that mindset and think. Why did we make that particular musical choice? Um, it's 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 good fun. It really is fun because we've both both Sean and me have done kind of uh, either reconstruct. In Sean's case, he has MD reconstructions of things, you know, playing with Arthur Lee and the Tropicalia people from Brazil and um, a lot of things like that. And in my case, I've kind of been a hired gun on. Um, theatre type musical productions in France and stuff like that, learning quite complex material and trying to fathom, you know, the the guiding principles of of that. So to put those things into practice on Micro Disney circa 1985, um, it is it's it is it is fun. Yes, and I mean, obviously, you know, the band means so much to the fans. And um, was that a surprise? You know, I mean, that's a bit of a stupid question, really, isn't it? But I mean, you know, obviously, when when you get into your fifties as a as a date, you know, a lot of the music you don't listen. To, you know, I as a fan don't listen to it all the time, but occasionally go back to it and think, actually, this is this is still pretty amazing. You know, I'm I'm still pleased, and I'm I'm still pleased. I was pleased that you know that was the music I liked when I was growing up, and and obviously still still thinking, yeah, there is a lot to it. And so as a fan, yes, I mean we we sort of it means a lot to us actually to sort of. I think one of the things about sort of bands and when bands break up, and and you know, obviously as a fan, you. You, you sometimes just want to know that the members of the band are okay, even if they are not 
part of a band anymore, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think a lot of us have that. And in, in some cases, it's, in most cases, it's actually true, I think. But, you know, the, without point, wanting to be finger pointy, there, there are celebrated examples of people not either not still being on the planet or having a really hard time. Um, I'm thinking of that documentary about Lawrence, um, for example. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, given that it's not possible to do what we did as easily now, um, there is an affirmation in knowing that people do manage to sustain an output. I mean, like Kev, Kev from Stump, for example, I mean, he's doing great music with that group Prescott that he's got. Um, and he never really stopped, you know. He's, he's had things under his own name and ticklish and stuff like that. So just because people have other things going on in their lives, um, it doesn't mean they, they don't keep up some sort of output. And I think that's the most hardening thing of all, you feel a bit less uh, downcast about things than you might do sometimes if you know that other people, other contemporaries have managed to managed to continue. You lose all any kind of sectarian or tribal yes. <laughs> outlook that you might have had um, when you were younger, when it was, which you know you realised was was just bullshit, really. Yes, and do you, and do you sort of because you you supported them. You too. Do you do you sometimes think, my God, I can't believe that they're still doing what they're doing and that they've kept it together almost? Well, I can, I can believe that they've kept it together because I've, <laughs> I've seen what, um, what an what an efficient and uh, imaginative approach they they they've always had to things. I think it's a little bit str- it's strange now. It ever since the advent of of you know, the live nation, ultra-corporate approach to to marketing music and touring music. It's been a strange time for a, a band that are that massive that ha- that and that has concerns outside of just playing the music, marketing the music, what, you know, that stuff. It's It has feel, felt like they're in a field of one doing something quite atypical um, because certainly... Ariana Grande and uh, oh, it's probably a bad example. She she certainly demonstrated that she cared what happened at her concert and all. But uh, you know, acts at that level tend not to care about the things that you two care about in whatever you know flawed human way. You know, the tax controversy and so on. Um, it um, yeah, they were in a field of one. There you go. That was the third part of my interview with Cole. And uh, one more bit to go. Anyway, we always like to take and talk about the musical business, as you do when you get to a certain age. Anyway, this is another track. This is from a John Peel session from 1983. This is a track called Sun. Oh, 
was a track called Sun that came from their 1983 John Peel session. Oh, yes, it did. I hope so anyway. Otherwise, you can tell me it didn't. But um, yes, this is going to be the fourth part of my interview with Carl, where I ask him that amazingly excited question. What would you say to your 18-year-old self starting out in music? Hurrah! I would. I think I would say, you know, f- to focus on the thing that people appreciate about what you do currently, but don't be a prisoner of it. Always try to keep your your um, your abilities expanding beyond that, even if you don't plan to use those abilities immediately. Um, I think that more than anything else, because that gives you confidence and it makes you more relaxed about the situation you're currently in because it all passes uh, for better and for worse you know other things do do happen to you and the more prepared you can be to adapt um, the, the longer you're going to be able to continue um, I certainly lost sight of that many times I lost sight of it towards the end of Micro Disney big time I lost sight of it in the Fatima mansions pretty much the whole way through. The whole thing was about panic. And, you know, with the mansions, much more than Micro Disney, it was a it was a mis- it was a, a grievous mistake because I got into contractual problems at the end. And it took five years to get free of them. And it meant I, there there was really very little that I could do. I couldn't put out records. Um I could play gigs, but I it was I was advised against playing any of the material that I was writing because it could end up belonging to somebody who hadn't contributed to it. Um, and all of that stuff happened. And it was around then that I really learned the virtue of trying, at least, within the limits of your morale, to to push yourself outwards and to you know, have other involvements musically that weren't to do with what could be a very limited um, situation, you know. Uh, and I, I tried, but it, but it certainly wasn't perfect. And I, I, If someone had slapped me at, at 18 and said, look, you know, the thing that things that are happening to you now may seem great, but they're not the be-all and end-all. They can't be, you know. Uh, that, w- that would have been pretty sage. But when I was 18, I hadn't even found out how to do music yet, really. It was only when I was, I think... No, actually, I think I was 18 when I met Sean. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it was meeting Sean that actually opened it all up for me, really, up to that point. It was just cassettes, you know, cassettes in the bedroom. Yes. Yeah. And when you, I mean, sort of, when you sort of look back on your career with the both bands and your solo, I mean, do you sort of see a narrative at all? Do do you sometimes think, God, I, you know, there was just jumping from one thing to another or, or you know, because I, I suppose I've been a bit obsessed with David Bowie and then sort of looking back at his kind of career, it's quite interesting the way that he went through different decades and different producers and different styles, you know, and, and he kept going until that sort of period in about 83 when he kind of disappeared for about a decade. I mean, when you look back and you see the, the work that you did, do you sort of see any narrative to that? Um, I no to be honest i'm still too close to it it's so it's 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 i can see the personal narrative which is a bit fractured um you know i kind of drove my whole life into the wall somewhere around 91 92 um 
and it took a while to kind of pull everything back together again after that. Um, and that had an impact on the way I was able to do music. Um, uh, but other than that, that's got a big red target around us. The end of Micro Disney has a smaller, you know, it has an A target around it too, but I was a bit more resilient at that point, I think. I certainly can't see any parallels with Bowie because, you know, I think one of the things we've learned about him in all the scrutiny that's happened since his sad uh, departure was just how messed up things got for him around, you know, uh, 19, I guess 1980, 79, somewhere around there. He, he was broke and he had made that Faustian bargain with Tony DeFries that seems to have dogged him for a lot longer than any than the public knew about, I think. I don't really have an equivalent of that. Um, but the thing you appreciate about Bowie is how he kept his nerve. He was able to do Let's Dance, which isn't a you know, isn't his finest hour, but it got the it really got the job done for him. And it has good material, some good material. I'm not wild about the arrangements, but um, the le- the lesson he teaches us, I think, is 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 to keep your nerve. And even when creatively things aren't wonderful, because I don't know, maybe you're focusing on being a parent or something like that. Because I think that maybe is what he was doing. Um, uh, things can come back around again as long as you keep the door open. And that's what I've been trying to do these last few years. I haven't released anything new for a while, but. Um, there is work and it will come out eventually when it's ready. Mm. So, um, you know, life, as long as you don't get it knocked out of you by some sudden health problem or an accident or something, you know, it does go on for long enough to allow us these opportunities if we just, if we just keep trying. And um, that's, yeah, that's what, I, that's what I'm doing. And that is sadly the final part of my interview with Carl Coughlin that I did just before Christmas. And uh, a big thank you for giving me the time, especially because it was eight o'clock in the morning on the West Coast. Um, But anyway, it all sounded rather good. So, um, yes, a big shout out and thanks for that. And also just to say, and I know I've said it before, but uh, the Micro Disney are reforming and playing a gig on the 9th of June. That's at the Barbican. So do check that out as well. And um, yes, sometime in the near future, I will be playing the interview that I had with Sean O'Hagan, which is um, also very exciting and intense as always but um this has been david easter on the c86 show and if you do want to contact me you can via facebook or twitter just go to at c86 show i will be there and it's always nice to hear some positive messages and um, all that kind of groovy stuff anyway look i'm going to play another track from there john pill or the fatima mansions john pill session from 1990 this is a track called it will be cold anyway have a fantastic week And um, tune in for another special guest next week. It's the last day of fiesta And the priests are begging for Over Savior's return, so they shoot out the street.
they burn their flock when the church sing we don't So cheer.